Okay, we're starting Parshas Kisisa. Yeah, let's go. Parak Lamin Pasuk Yud Aleph. It says Vayidaber Hashem Moshe Lemor. Not much on that Pasuk, but Hashem spoke to Moshe saying Kisisa is Rosh Bnei Yisrael of Gudehem. Menasa knew Ish Kover Nafsho Lashem Bifkodo Sam Veliyavah Negev Bifkodo Sam. When you count the heads of Bnei Yisrael according to their numbers. As opposed to according to their letters, right? And also each Hashem, each person gives the redemption of themselves to Akadish Baruch when they number themselves. There won't be any plague when they get counted. Okay, lots of stuff in this pasuk. They say that there's not going to be any plague because you're counting them not by head, rather you're counting them by something that they're giving, right? Okay, there's another remez over here. What's the other remez? Rashi says over here that there's a count later on. So you can't say that this counts as the same as the one mentioned in Parshas Bamidbor. <coughs> Even though the number comes out to be the exact same thing, 603,550 people in the counting over here in Kisisa, as well as the counting over there in Parshas Bamidbor. So even though it comes out to be the exact same number, it's not the same as the one over there. The, the Shevatim are happen all different. at different times, right. And it happened at but, different times. Well, we don't go through the Shevatim over here. Oh. And so regardless, it, it happens to be that it was done at different times. One was done early on, right after the Egel Azov. The other one was done in Eeyore, which is right after Nisan, right after Nisan. So it's right after the Mishkan was set up, 30 days actually after the Mishkan was set up. So it seems to be that they were done at different times. Rashi goes through a whole thing and he says, well, wait a second, how did they have the exact same number? How was it possible they had 603,550 in both times? So he says, because it's a very interesting thing, I'm apparently not 27 just yet. I'm not. I thought I turned 27 on September 6th slash Tesvavel. I thought so. But Rashi tells us that birthdays really go by the year. So it goes by the next Tishrei. Or I guess I did turn 27 because I turned 27 in the beginning of that Tishrei. No, so I'm not 28, let's say. I'm not 28. So what happened over here is that we don't have... We don't have, we don't have, uh, apparently birthdays go by the next year, by next Tishrei, by the next Rosh Chodesh Tishrei. Yeah. So Tishrei? Tishrei is the first... Tishrei year one or the first Tishrei I would have thought... Meaning, let's say you were just born, let's say you were born on Tesvavelo like myself. So I was born 15 days before Rosh Chodesh Tishrei, which is really Rosh Hashanah, right? Right? I turned (laughs) one... Officially, I'm Rosh Chodesh Tishrei. Two weeks later. No, no, no. Two weeks later. Two weeks later. Now. I turned two. Right. It's the opposite. I turned two on the next Rosh Chodesh Tishrei. I turned three on the next Rosh Chodesh Tishrei, and that's how it goes. And everybody has the same birthday. That's how we. Count. Everybody's going to have that birthday, and everybody is the exact same age. Everybody becomes the exact. That's same how age. we count for kings too. But oh, I wish people were horses. <laughs> the question is why? Why that's is how we count question. for kings too? But that's not how it's we bring a, it down. Not with normally, how it's brought down. But Rashi seems to say that that's how it goes over here. And Thus, when it comes to Kisi, so when you're counting everybody over here, it goes by the amount of numbers that you have. It goes by your birthday that it is in Tishrei. That's how he says it. Therefore, it was all the same number because it's the same people who turned 20 to 60 during that time. The Ramban says that that's a bit of a pella, that that's how he counts. It's a bit of a pella. So rather, he says that the second time around... That's why, that's why it's Tishrei, because it, be, it can't be Nisan. Not, because right, exactly, because Nisan was right in between. This is the year. So the Ramban says it's a big of a pella. So you know what happened? The first time they counted, they counted only 
only B'nai Yisrael without the Levian. Counted B'nai Yisrael without the Levian. The second time they counted, they counted the Levian, and they didn't include other people. There were certain people that had passed away during the time, and the amount of people that died were the same amount of people, were the same amount of Levian that they included in the second counting. So even though the first counting was 603,550 without the Levian, then a lot of people died, the second counting was also 603,550 with the Levian. He says that's what happened. They included the Levium instead. The Chassam Sofer says that's the biggest pella I've ever heard before in my life. That the amount of people that died were the exact same amount that they counted from the Levium, and it turned out to be the exact same number. Why wouldn't they have counted Levium in the first place anyway? That's a good question. Also, why wasn't Levium counted the first time and only counted the second time? And Mizrahi says an awesome answer, but he has a little bit of a problem. Mizrahi says, this is Dordea, this is true also. This is Dordea. This is the door of, you know, of knowledge. The door that is beyond any reproof or anything. They don't just stomp die. These people live to ripe old ages and good ages, stomp because they're unbelievable people. So therefore, nobody died, nobody died under the, over the, nobody died in between the ages of 20 to 60 during that time. And anybody that did, there were other people, whatever it is, and, and somehow none of these people walked in. But there's still a bit of a pell over here. So Levusha Ora gives the answer. Levusha Ora goes in and he says an absolutely unbelievable answer. When they counted the first time in Kisisa, which is all the way in the beginning of the year, they knew that the Mishkan wasn't going to be set up yet. And they knew that these num- numbers were only going to be important to tell you how much money they were going to make later on that year. That's why they counted. They wanted to know how much, how many shkullim, half shkullim, they were going to give later on that year. So they'd know how much silver they were going to get. So when they counted the first time, they counted the people who would be between the ages of 20 and 60 at the time when the Mishkan would be built. On Rosh Kodesh, not that who actually were they counted at all those people. Not necessarily at that time when they counted in, in, uh, in I'm sorry, in Cheshvan. Not those people at that time in Tishrei or Cheshvan or whatever it is. They counted those people, not the guys that are 20 now or the guys that are you know 60 now. Only the people who are going to be between the ages of 20 and 60 at the time of the second <laughs> counting, which will be on Rosh Kodesh year. Which will be on Rosh Kodesh year. Those are the people that were counting. Altogether, that was 603,550. The only pella is that nobody died. Nobody died. Everyone lived from now up until that point. Thus, the Pshapi and the Pasuk, Vlo Yebahem Negeth Bifkodosa. When you count them, tell them. You're counting them. Only the people are going to be 20 to 60 later on on Rosh Chodesh Yor. But one of those guys might say, why should I give a half shekel now? Maybe I'm not going to be alive on Rosh Chodesh Yor. I might die within the next seven months. Who knows what's going to happen to me in the next seven months? So Kodesh Baruch did a miracle and he said, no, you're going to be perfectly fine. Lo Yebahem Negeth Bifkodosa. I guarantee to you, nobody will die between the ages of 20 and 60 from now up until Rosh Hashanah. Nobody will die from then on. That's the miracle over here. Seven months, six months, six and a half months, about that time. Nobody's going to die from then on. Yeah. Um, I just a general question about the Parsha. Mm-hmm. No, no, this Parsha. Why is... No. I can't ask that? Where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> High school. What in the world? Uh, so either way, number two. Lamed Aleph Bays. Perak Lamed Aleph Pusik Bays. Pusik says... Again, we have an aloe. Behold, or see, I have called out the name of Bitzal. <laughs> I do a shout out. Oh, somebody asked me to do a shout out today. Mo Brownstein, Mike Green, shout out. You're done. See, I have called in the name of Bitzal. I'm calling out in the name of Bitzal. He's a Kim. So strange lush over here. I will fill him, future tense, with the Spirit of God. 
Malachah with wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and he'll be able to learn all the all, everything on how to work. Now, how old was Betzalel at the time? Almost. He's almost 13. He's actually 12 and a half. He's not exactly 13 yet, but he's turning there. He's 12 and a half. Maybe even 12 and three quarters. He's going to be on Rosh Kodesh Tishrei, right? He's going to be around there. But he's, he's altogether, he's very, very, very young. Very young. And a Kodesh Baruch who says, he doesn't have it yet, but I will give him the knowledge to be able to know what to do. But he doesn't have it yet. So the measure says an unbelievable thing. A Kodesh Baruch went up to Moshe Rabbeinu and said to Moshe Rabbeinu, are you okay with this guy doing all the work? So what did Akash Baba, what did Moshe Rabbeinu say? Moshe Rabbeinu said, uh, if you're good with it, I'm okay with it. You know, like, don't, you know, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. I, I think the wording of the Medrash is, in lefanecha hu hagum. Lefanai lokol shekein. If in front of you he's good. In front of me, don't you think he's going to be good? Like, I, I have no complaints. I'm not going to have any complaints about him. He's a good guy. So the question is, okay, what is that Medrash coming, trying to teach us? And why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu bother saying that to Moshe Rabbeinu in the first place? The normal shot is, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, listen, I'm giving you a 13-year-old who doesn't necessarily know what he's doing yet. Are you okay with me doing that? And then eventually he'll learn as he goes on. Like, are you willing to, you know, to go and stand in front of an Israel and be like, okay, like pick basically a number out of a hat. I pick Bitzalel. Bitzalel's like, really? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, don't worry, God will give it to you. So are you okay with doing that over there? Are you okay with that or no? So, all right, that's, that was said. That's one of those shatim that, uh, that goes out there. Sam Sofer. That's a good question. Again, that I pretty much answered that. But the answer is, is that, uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> Next time you can pay attention. But it, now that you asked, I'll just repeat the word. <laughs> I said, the reason why is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu knew that there was, uh, that there was, uh, he, that he was going to be questioned. A 13-year-old who doesn't really know what he's doing, you want to pick that guy? Why him? But I'll tell you the Chassam Sofer. This Chassam Sofer is awesome. Mushal to a king. Not often do you hear a parable in the Chassam Sofer, but parable to a king. The king is an, a bodyguard. He looks at the bodyguard and he sees the bodyguard has a, has a ring on. And the king really likes the ring and wants to take it. So the king says to the guy, isn't that a beautiful ring? Don't you just love that ring? Thinking that what's the guy going to say? Yes, it is a beautiful ring. It's a very beautiful ring. The best one I own. To which the king will say, oh, something so beautiful belongs to the king. The king is ready to have it. Can you give it to me as a gift? That's what the king was doing. So the king said, wow, what a beautiful ring, thinking he was going to say, yes, it is. So what did the guy say back to him? He knew he couldn't say back to him that I have a beautiful ring. But he also knew he couldn't say back to him that it's not very beautiful. I don't like it at all, because the king will say, you're a liar. So what was he going to do? So he says back to him, it was very beautiful to me before, but it's even more beautiful to me now, because now I see that the king loves it. And every time I look at this ring, I'll think of the king. So that's a good line, right? So the king didn't want to take it away from him because he wants him to be reminded of him at all times. So here we go. What HaKadosh Baruch said to Moshe Rabbeinu was the following. He said, look at this guy, Betzal. Isn't he an unbelievable guy? Moshe Rabbeinu was thinking to himself, why is HaKadosh Baruch telling this to me? So he thought to himself, you know why? He must be saying to himself the same thing that happened with Nadav and Aviyu, the same thing that happened to Hanoch, same thing that happened to Eliyahu and Aviyu, that HaKadosh Baruch hasn't happened yet. That will happen to Nadav and Aviyu. The same thing will happen by those people. That the pshat is that a Kaddish Baruch who wants to take these people up to Shemayim and bring them before him, before his throne, and to lead them in front of his throne because they're such unbelievable people. They don't deserve to be on earth anymore. They deserve to be up in Shemayim in a Kaddish Baruch court right around himself. They deserve to be up there. So 
what he was afraid of is that Bitzalo was going to die and he was going to go up to Shemayim. So what he said in front of a Baruch who was so what Hashem said was, is Bitzalo okay in front of you? To which he thought Moshe Rabbeinu was going to say, he's great, and Hashem would say, if he's so great, he should be in front of me. So what did Moshe Rabbeinu say back? Moshe Rabbeinu said back, if in front of you he's so good, then in front of me, low Kol Shekin, of course he's going to be great in front of me. I think he's going to be even more so. And every time I look at Bitzalo, I'm going to think of Akadosh Baruch Hu and his line that he said to me. So that's what Akadosh Baruch Hu did, and that was the Medrash back. That's the Shabbi and Moshe Rabbeinu's line. Now, we are not going to discuss the following questions. We're not going to discuss the following questions. Why not send Moshe down early so that the Holy Ghost did not happen? We're not going to discuss that. Number two, why did Aaron make a Mizbeah? We're not going to discuss that. Number three, why did Aaron get involved at all? Why did he even listen to them? Not going to discuss that. Number four, why not ask for Aaron to be the new leader? Why did they need an idol? Number four. Number five, why did Moshe bring the Luchos down if he was going to break them anyway? What did he think? Your people are worshipping of what is He knew that. What did he do? It's dramatic. Number six. Why break the Lukos in the first place? Why not be gonies then? Why not hide them and put them away? At least do something covenant out of them. Don't smash them into a billion pieces on the ground. And number seven. What was the real hate of an Israel? Their actual sin? You can't just say it was a Vodazara. What was the actual hate of an Israel? Those are seven questions which I'm not going to answer. If you want to know the answers to that question, go away. I'm not going to answer those now. Maybe we'll get into them next year. We're not going to go into them right now. So anyway, what's the deal with all these? What we're going to discuss is how the eagle could have happened 40 days after Harsina. How could it have happened 40 days after Harsina? B'nai Yisrael were sitting there, and they just had seen Harsina, as well as Kriyas Yamsu, as well as all the Makos that happened in Mitzrayim. They knew there was a God out there. How could they have allowed this to happen? Now I know that the obvious answer that everybody gives, and which is not wrong, but however it's lacking something, is that they didn't want him to be a God. They wanted him to be an intermediary. They wanted the Ego Azov to be another intermediary. But it's still extremely strange, because they didn't have an intermediary up until now. They had Moshe Rabbeinu, and they knew that Moshe Rabbeinu was not a God. So what in the world were they thinking all of a sudden that they said, let's make an Ego Azov? What happened to them? Now, you know, when something happens to you, like, let's say, after a disaster, the effect wears off. Like, after a while, like, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, sort of, it, it just, the effect I don't know how the effect of Kriyas Yamsuf, the Makos, and <coughs> everything could have possibly not affected I mean, it's possible, but it seems very, very unlikely. But yeah. Does Eglazov, did that translate to Golden Calf? Golden Calf. The Golden Calf. It's another, uh, yeah, we're going to have to get to that also. All right, B'nai Yisrael saw tremendous things in Mitzrayim. They saw the Yamsuf, but it was so quick. Remember what happened before? What level were they on when they first left Mitzrayim? Or not the level of Tumor. All of a sudden, they got raised themselves up to a crazy level, up to the level in which they picked up the Torah, which they say is the 49th level of Kedusha. The 49th level of Kedusha. That's a tremendously high level for people that were just at the 49th level of Tumor. Moving yourself up that quickly, and the obvious answer is what comes out over here, moving yourself up that quickly, it's just straight as a gift from God because there's no way to naturally be able to do it or to be able to work on yourself to be able to bring yourself up that quickly it's not going to happen so rather it's going to be something that has to be given over to you as a gift if you don't work so hard for something it's very easy for you to lose it when you work hard for something you're not going to lose it 
because you don't want to lose it. You're working as hard as you can so that you don't lose it. But it, however, if it was granted them for free, then it's possible for them to fall down very, very quickly. That was the title of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu said in Perak Lamed Gimel Pasuk Kazayin Vini Flinu Aniv Amcha. You separated us. You made us fall. He said to Hakadosh Baruch because you brought us up to such a high pedestal that of course the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to fall straight down. The faster you run, the easier you tire. You brought us too quickly. If you would have slowed it down, given us 40 years, and given us Matan Torah at the end of 40 years, then we could be able to understand the Torah. But you did it too quick. You did it way too quick, and of course the people are going to fail that way. Now we did discuss before, in Parshish Bishalach, if you remember, the reason why it had to be so quick. It had to be that quick. Spoken Parshish Bishalach that he didn't want to bring them to Derech Eretz Pelishim. He didn't want to slow it down for them and make them learn Derech Eretz first. He needed them to learn just Torah, and then afterward learn the Derech Eretz. He couldn't make them learn Derech Eretz first and then the Torah. However, it seemed very quick. The ran, you run faster, the t- more tired you get. That's number one. Number two, number two, is you, Moshe Rabbeinu had another time. Giving people too much money, too much gold, and too much things, physical things, within the world, in the middle of the midboard, when they had nothing to do with it, and they had nothing else to do with it, is too bad. It, it, it's too easy for you to get screwed up with that gold. The gold was too easy for them to get swayed to bring it to something which they were so used to doing anyway. They're so used to making these types of idols. It was very easy for them to get swayed because HaKadosh Baruch Hu had given them so much money. When you have that much money in your Bill Gates, you might as well spend the money on anything. You could buy a city and it wouldn't make a difference to you. It wouldn't even put a dent in your wallet. We'll do anything for you. So according the way it is, is they were just sitting there and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Moshe Rabbeinu time to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, listen, if you would have not given them so much money, then there's no way it would have happened. But because you gave them so much money, it's possible for B'nai Israel to be swayed by such things and go on. Oh, they had nothing to spend it on. Like, they had the food. And they had nothing. They, they yeah. had to wash their clothes, so therefore they could just put it all into building cows. <laughs> Building cows and that's it. Number three is a Mesha Chachma. Mesha Chachma says an unbelievable shot. He says, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, he says it in about seven different paragraphs, and he goes on and on and on. An, an absolutely unbelievable Mesha Chachma. But uh, I'm paraphrasing it basically. A person, a person naturally wants to see something in front of them. How everybody says, like, I want to see God. I want to be proven that there's a God out there. If I can't see it in black and white, then I can't believe that there's a God out there because I can't see it. A person naturally wants that. It's hard to just believe just with your head. So when B'nai Yisrael left Mitzrayim, they did see things. But that wasn't a constant seeing. It wasn't like a constant thing in Shemaim that they could look at and be like, oh, there's God. There's God up there. Oh, just he just disappeared fire. right afterward. All they saw, they saw some crazy things. They saw some, cra- they saw some crazy miracles and everything like that. But it just went away. It dissipated in the air along with all the clouds, with any other cloud out there. And they forgot what it was like to see something in front of them. So they instead, they put their idea of what God is onto Moshe Rabbeinu. And they said, he is our representation to God. And they used him, sort of, as a representative, as being what God would be like if God were here as a human being. This is what it would look like. You know, some people like they have to draw God, and you always draw God with like a long white beard, and you think of him as being, I mean, that is a Gemari, it's a Pasuk in Yechazkel. But regardless, like a long white beard and a white, white dress that goes all the way down, like a white robe and everything. You know, you picture him as being like a very hush of older guy. You always have to picture him in your head. Because you can't, you don't know what it's like to picture a God without a picture. 
You don't know what it's like. It, it's impossible for us. So we have to have a picture in our heads. And that's why Kodesh Baruch always refers to himself in the Torah with a hand, or with my hand that went out of Mitzrayim. And he refers to himself as being, showing the Panim and the Achorayim, the Moshe Rabbeinu, and this is the face and the back. He refers to himself as wearing tefillin, Moshe Rabbeinu went to Shemayim, and so Kodesh Baruch davening. He's saying, I'm saying in this week's parasha, just unbelievable things. What does that mean? What do the, these things mean? There's no way that a Kodesh Baruch can have a, an appearance, but we have to think of it as that way, because it's impossible for us to think otherwise. So what Moshe Rabbeinu realized only after he had come down is that they had thought that Moshe Rabbeinu himself was that and then all of a sudden when Moshe Rabbeinu was gone they had to put it onto something else. They needed something else not to be a God but to be the reminder a constant reminder of something they could look at and say this is our reminder of God and that was the Ego Azov. Something precious something beautiful and they didn't want another person this answer someone they didn't want another person because they're afraid that the person will die and then they're going to come to this exact same problem. So instead they wanted that golden thing instead. They wanted that golden thing instead. Now, that, that was just, just a point hour. That was just one. It's, 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 it's an unbelievable... Yes, yeah, an hour before, I wasn't going to get to. But anyway, <laughs> but it's an unbelievable shot in the end. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu break the Lukovs? Again, I'm not going to get to that, but this is part of the Meshachachma. It's not the whole answer. But the shot is, the reason why he wanted to break the Lukovs was because, what were they going to use the Lukovs for? After Moshe Rabbeinu was dead, they would use the Lukovs as the reminder of God. As their constant reminder of looking at God, this is my representation of God. And that's a problem. The Lukos was the new eagle as of. So as soon as Moshe Rabbeinu saw that they had that problem, he took those Lukos, smashed it on the ground, and said, these guys can't have them. I'm sorry? That's what the Aaron and the Kruvim were, and they did have to bring the Lukos back. You see, they had a tikkun on that. But at the time, he saw that that's what they were thinking. Yes. Um... But is it like how can so many like three million people whatever like miscount the days? Everybody but Aaron miscounted. If Aaron miscounted, that means everybody else would follow him, right? It could be that people didn't. Aaron was counted. If uh, uh, Aaron was counted, I understand, but he knew because he said Aaron was counting and day, thought that they're going to push it off. But no, 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 he, no, no, he, he wanted to push it off because he knew Moshe Rabbeinu was going to come back eventually. He knew that Moshe Rabbeinu was going to come back eventually. He counted the wrong days. Did he really? Everybody did. Everybody did. There was nobody out there that said, "What if we have the wrong day?" How do we know if we No, it's not that. Forty days. The pasuk doesn't say anything. Right. That's true. Moshe Rabbeinu himself knew, and he had apparently told the saw to wait forty days. Forty days and four. 40 days. He did not mention 40 nights. Yoshua was by the mountain. He had to suk him, suk him. That's in the Pasuk. The fourth answer, which is a little bit more hard to understand, but you know what? It happens to be an unbelievable answer. What was the fate of the Etadas? What was the fate of Adam Rishon and the Etadas with the tree when Adam Rishon ate from that tree? What was his problem? What was his problem? So people say, the basic shot is set from the Derech Hashem. I heard this shot from Rabbi Weiss in Basis Saul, but the, uh, the idea can apply right back to Azov, and it's an unbelievable answer. Adam Rishon felt like a Nebuch. Felt like an absolute Nebuch. The reason why is because he sat there and HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, listen, I'm putting you in the world. What I want you to do is watch the garden. Watch the garden. Just make sure it's okay. Adam Rishon said to God, from what? What could possibly come in here and ruin the garden? He's like, not much. But just watch it. Do me a favor and do that Shemira. And if, as long as you do that Shemira, as long as you do that guarding, then you'll get Olam Haba. So other Rishon said to himself, this is not a real job. I don't deserve Olam Haba from watching a tree. That's not enough for me. 
He said, I want to really deserve to, to, to get that Olam Abba. I want to deserve that reward. I want to get that reward because I did something that was special. Not because I'm just a Nebuch and a Kirshbach who's giving me a gift. A gift. I want to do something. You don't just want to sit back, relax, and just live the rest of your life doing absolutely nothing. You want to do something with your life. That was Adam Marishal's decision, and he decided to do the hate. He was willing to eat from that tree of the Eitzadas in order to sin, and even though he knew it was a sin, it was to bring himself to a level where he'd have to bring himself up to deserve Olam Haba. And he was willing to sacrifice his entire life, his entire Olam Haba, in order to work on himself and deserve his Olam Haba. Because working for your food is going to be so much better than just getting it for free. That's what he decided. B'nai Yisrael were on the exact same level as Adam Rishon before the Chet. B'nai Yisrael had no Yitzhahara. They had no problem. So there was nothing wrong with them whatsoever. But they said to themselves, and even though they might not have been involved, the Arab Rab might have started, we'll see in a second what exactly happened. It might have only been 600 of them, and everybody else is just standing on the side. All of Ben Israel had deep down that feeling. Why weren't they mocha? Why didn't they make a machal? Why didn't they get up and say, no, guys, stop it. What are you guys doing? Because deep down inside, they wanted the sin to happen. Deep down inside, they wanted to have the concept of tshuva in the world. They wanted to bring it about to sin, to bring yourself back, and to deserve the olam haba that you're going to get in the very end. If you were there, you would have made the exact same decision. You would have done the exact same thing. Just like Adam Marisha made that original sin, so too, Bnei Yisrael made that sin on purpose in order to deserve an olam haba. That's what I, 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 I don't think this is a rationalization. This last answer, I think, is not a rationalization over anything else. All the others might be rationalizations as to what they were doing or what they were. If you have no Yetzirah, then yes, you can say that. But otherwise, it's your Yetzirah saying it. If you can prove to yourself that it's not the Yetzirah, then you can say it. But if you were on the level of, do- of this generation in which they had no Yetzirah and they were told they had no Yetzirah, and they made the decision, that means it's a real decision. But it was wrong. How can... It was not... They went to Olam Haba. Every single one of them. And you know how we know that they were des- they knew that they had done something wrong and they had done tshuva for it? Not only tshuva, pure tshuva. They allowed the B'nai Levi to kill them. They allowed B'nai Levi to come up to them and kill them. You have 600,000 men between the ages of 20 to 60 that were being fought, that were being killed by a total of 22,000 Levian. They could have started a war and decimated the Levian. But they didn't. They allowed the 3,000 people to be killed because they knew they had done something wrong. How many people ended up getting killed? 3,000. At least. At least. We're not talking about the Magaifa. We're not talking about the Magaifa. And we had the Levian. Well, 3,000 people were killed out of the 600,000 people. If the 3,000 people wanted to fight back, they would have had back. They would have had the six, the other 597,000 people to back them up. And that's just the men. That's not including the women and the kids and the people of the age of 60. Women didn't do it. That's not for now. Yeah. What were you well, I think I was going to basically say something like what I was said. That, uh, I mean, if, like today, we can't, it's affairs that we can't go out and do an affair and say, oh, I'll do tshuva for it and then it'll be okay. Definitely. It's not going to be okay. Definitely. That's 100% that like true. That's and you can't make Make that decision, but they could. If you know you have no Yitzhahara, of course you can make that decision. Because it's not your Yitzhahara speaking. Wasn't the Nachash already there? How is not within them, within Adamarisha. By Adamarisha. But he was around. Adamarisha himself was not involved in the hate of the, of the Nachash. All it says is they gave it to, she gave it to the man. She gave it to Adamarisha. Her mistake is something else entirely. Adamarisha, why did Adamarisha need from it? After hearing what Akarish Baruch said to him, how did he do it? He was masking to the hate. He's asking him, this is what I want to do. 
Why was he masking? Because he knew that this is the right decision to make. And so what a Kaddish Baruch Hu wanted in the first place. A Kaddish Baruch Hu doesn't want you to be just a Nebuchadnezzar who's getting everything for a gift. If Hashem wanted that, why didn't Hashem tell him that? That's you can't. Said. Why not? It's not fair to give a per, put a person Hashem in a situation where you're most likely going to sin. That, that wasn't correct. No, because Adam, because he knew that Avraham Avinu was going to pass the test. You can't put a person in a situation where they're ninety percent going to sin, ten percent not going to sin, and say good luck. You can put him in a situation where he ninety percent will not sin, ten percent will sin, and then say, okay, now make the decision. If you want to make it the opposite way, now you can, but you have to make that decision. And that's what I really want. I really want you to work on it. I really want you to work on yourselves, but I can't make you do that. So they decided, and that set up the entire world for us. It's a deep thought, but that's the way that's the way uh, that's the way it works basically. There's a little bit more. Okay, whatever. What happened? Here's an introduction from the Alkaruveni. This is everything that happened over here. Arav Rav, I have from A to I think it's W altogether, A to W on all the uh, the different things that happened, all the different midrashim, whatever that put we put them all together. <laughs> Erev Rav out of the Anunin they were all, all out of the Anunin the Erev Rav were not allowed within the clouds they're sitting with the animals they were fighting on Malik all the time they only ate the leftover mum they were very very upset and obviously had reason to be upset they're sitting outside watching B'nai Israel party it up within the Anunin eating all the mum having all the water they wanted getting all the taste and everything they're eating all the leftovers sitting with animals and with the Amalekim fighting the Amalekim at all times number two they heard HaKadosh Baruch Hu say at Har Sinai Beini Ubein Bnei Yisrael Osi Liolam Between me and between Bnei Yisrael It's an Os forever And they said to themselves Wait, it's between me and Bnei Yisrael What about Erevra? Are we included in Bnei Yisrael? They were specifically excluded From that line from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And they got even more upset so They decided They're going to make their own leaders so They called out Yonus and Yambrus Yonus and Yambrus are also known as Yochanai and Mamre Who are the two sons of Bilam They were Mechashvim They were the chief magicians In the times of Paro and Mitzrayim The chief Mechashvim of Paro and they were made the new leaders to decide what they were going to do, how they were going to trick Bnei Yisrael. But Bnei Yisrael were untouchable. They had no Yitzhahara. They had a constant Nishama Yisera. They couldn't even go to the bathroom. There was no such thing as going to the bathroom at this time. There was no such thing. I'm sorry? Wasn't mana perfect in that regard? Yeah, mana was perfect in that regard also. But even if they would eat food, there would be no such thing as going to the bathroom. It would just melt within their system. And obviously they wouldn't just get fatter. They would be able to lose the weight. They would be perfectly sized exactly to what they needed. Aside from that, they had crowns all over their heads, crowns on their heads. Some say two, some say 12, some say 24 crowns on top of their heads. Plus, they had a sword with the 72 letter shame of a Kaddish Baruch Hu on it that they constantly held on them that were able to control everything. They were able to, they were able to control everything. There was no way Erevrav were going to get anything near them. However, they needed to create a suffix. They needed a suffix. And as soon as there would be a suffix, then something could happen. The suffix was Boshesh Moshe. When Moshe refrained from coming down, all of a sudden a suffix entered their minds. That little suffix, where's Moshe Rabbeinu? Didn't convince them all the way to say, we're wrong, you know, must be that Moshe Rabbeinu is not coming back. They sat there and they said, you know what, something's wrong. But it was only in the back of their hearts, all the way in the back, and they didn't, re- they, they didn't really think about it. It was all, they pushed it all the way back, didn't think about it whatsoever. That was Boshesh Moshe. But the suffix did enter their minds. Yeah. Next one is that aside from that, if you want to say that they did a Lashem Shemayim, is that Boshesh is Boshesh. That they had seen that the Torah that they were about to get from Shemayim was not the 24 Sfarim of Tanakh. 
It was instead six Svarim. Chamishei Chum Torah and Yoshua. And there were going to not, there were, they would, it would be no need, there would be no need, it wouldn't be necessary to bring down the other 19 Svarim. 18 Svarim. 18 Svarim altogether. It's good. My quick math and 24 minus 6. Anyway, they, they realized that. They saw that and they said, why aren't we getting those other 18 Svarim? They got upset that they weren't going to get that. If you want to say that it was L'Shem Shemayim. So regardless, either it was Boshesh or Boshesh. So the Erev Rav quickly approached B'nai Yisrael. The Rabbeinu Ephraim says that the Erev Rav approached B'nai Yisrael with an idea. They said, listen, where's Moshe Rabbeinu? And immediately the Sultan brought out the coffin of Moshe Rabbeinu and showed it to them on top of the mountain. They were able to see the coffin of Moshe Rabbeinu they saw that Moshe Rabbeinu was gone, that he was completely gone. And the Arab Rav approached B'nai Israel with an idea. Kum ase lanu Elohim. Let's get up and we'll make, not gods, but Elohim as in judges. The same way that Moshe Rabbeinu was our judge, and he was the guy in charge of us. Let's put up these judges in the place of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why whenever it says, V'yalu Olos, it doesn't say V'yalu Olos Le'egel. It says, Chagla Hashem Le'machar. No, that was afterward, even though it was written before, and it was after Mount Torah, it was after Yom Kippur. And they reminded B'nai Yisrael of many different things. First of all was the King Apish. I don't know if anybody remembers the King Apish. But the King Apish lived in the 92nd year of Yaakov, Yaakov Avinu. He was the king of Mitzrayim who at the end of his life put his soul within a cow. And he took this calf and the calf went inside the water. And this calf would come out one day on the day of his death on his yurtzeit would come out every year fly out of the water and fly around the sky. The cow jumping over the moon I guess you could say came from this idea. It was going around in the sky. It had a half moon for a left eye. And it would go up and everybody would cheer on it and try to throw things at it. And it would be a day of celebration in Mitzrayim until it would melt down inside the sea. They reminded them about Apish. They reminded Ben Israel about Apish. They also reminded them that there was an eagle of battle. That there was a certain god that was a cow that if you put its picture on top of your armor when he went out to battle you were guaranteed to win that was a famous thing that they had in Mitzrayim they also reminded them that they used to have these pocket idols in Mitzrayim where you would always have your God with you and it was a reminder of the God of course it was the God in Shemayim but they had these pocket idols with them things they would carry around their necks or put in their pockets they'd always have with them so whenever they needed a quick fix they could just go up and pull it and they have their quick fix and they'd be able to listen to everything that God wanted them to do and they also reminded them that at the Yamsuk the Panach Raza says this there were footprints of Agolan, of calves, that were right outside the Yamsu, on the sand right outside the Yamsu. There were the Malachim's footprints, apparently, says the Panachraza, but they reminded them about that. And then all of a sudden, they reminded them about this the Malach named Amatia, who is the Gematria of Kum, the Gematria is Kum 146, who is the Malach of Midas Haddin, of the shore, of the ox, on the left side of Maisim of the chariot of God, whatever that means. He was the Malach of that side, who they had seen when they were at Kriyas Yamsu. They reminded them all about all these little things. And finally they pulled the clincher. They convinced Micha to join on their side. They got Micha, who was a very, very high up person in Shevet Dun, who had a little idol of his own, Peso Micha, to join them into saying that everything here is L'Shem Shemayim. Proving that the idols were just manifestations of Akarish Baruch within this world and how they can be used as replacements for Moshe Rabbeinu. Just like Moshe Rabbeinu was our intermediary between us and God, we we never spoke to God. We saw God. But we never really spoke with Him. We couldn't even take what God was saying. This will now be our intermediary. And they got all these things. They pulled out and they started saying, remember those things we did in Mitzrayim? We believed in God also. We were all into God. We also believed that it was Hashem. We just use these as ways of getting closer to Hashem.
and started to convince them. And because B'nai Yisrael had started that suffix, not everybody was convinced, but 600 people were convinced. 600 people heard that, and they said, you know what, maybe they're right. Maybe these things are manifestations. But they weren't totally convinced. They went to Moshe Rabbeinu, 1.6 million of the Erev Rav, and 600 people from B'nai Yisrael, all mixed in together. They all went up to Moshe Rabbeinu, and they said to Moshe Rabbeinu, okay, fine, I, I'm sorry, not to Moshe, I'm sorry, to Chur. They said to Chur, come, let's make for ourselves make for us something, some manifestation inside something small that will be like a calf that will remind us of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and everything that there is out there. What did Chur do? He refused. But because he refused in such an adamant way, instead of saying, guys, you're wrong, you guys don't know what you're talking about, stop it, please don't think that way. Instead, he yelled at them. And he looked at them and said, what's wrong with you guys? What are you, a bunch of idiots? God just appeared to us 40 days ago. You want, you want idols? What's wrong with you? And he got so angry at them that he started yelling at them and screaming at them. Kaddish Baruch Hu saw that his Musr wasn't being accepted in the right way, so he allowed Kur to be killed. That gave them a lot of power. Because as soon as they saw that Erevrav were able to kill Hur, who's a tremendously powerful person in Klai Yisrael, who was one of the people that was on the side of Moshe Rabbeinu, one of the people that held up Moshe Rabbeinu's arms in the war against Amalek, they realized there's something going on around here. What's going on with this? And thus, everybody from Klai Yisrael was afraid of giving them Musr. They were afraid of going up to them and giving them Musr, because what are they going to say to them? What are they going to say? Any, look at what happened to Hur. What if we get killed now? So everybody was afraid. They approached Aaron now. And Aaron tries to delay. Tries to delay everything. He knows that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to come back, but he knows that it's going to happen sometime later. He doesn't know when, but he knows that Moshe Rabbeinu is not dead. He knows that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to come back. Tries to delay. He can't, because they pulled out the earrings from their own ears. They pulled out all the gold from their wives' ears. They did everything they could. They threw everything in a massive pile in front of Aram. So instead, he starts to take the gold and tries to do something that will take a long time. Now, he had made a fire. Why did he make this fire? I threw it in the fire. Normally, if you want to make something out of gold, you don't just make a random fire and just put it in the middle of the street. You make a kira. You make like a big oven, a kiln, some type of oven, and you put it inside there, and you melt it all down, and then you make something out of it. You form it inside there. You don't just make a big fire, like a big bonfire, like a log baomer, and say like, okay, now it's time to make an idol. That's not what you do. But what did he say by Because he found among the pile of gold a certain piece of gold that had a Kaddish Baruch Hu's name on it. Some say it was Yud Vavke, some say it was Yam, Yud Lamed Yud, which is one of the shameless of the 72 letter shame. This is a bunch of things. He saw that on it, and on it was also drawn, engraved, a picture of an ox. He saw that on the Ramban says that Aaron himself put that on, but that's not for now to understand what the Ramban's talking about. It takes a lot of work. Either way, he took that toss, that piece of gold, and he said, what in the world? He said, for sure, if somebody threw this into the pile, he wrote this with Tuma. So it's like a reformed Jew writing a Sefer Torah, in which it's mutter to burn the Sefer Torah. So he took the shame of a Karish Baruch that he found, and he threw it into the fire. Little did he know that the fact that that was written by Jonas and Yambrus gave them power within that fire. He started throwing gold in, knowing it takes a long time for the gold to melt and then to engrave it and whatever and everything like that. Micha, on the other side of the fire, took another piece of gold that he had found when Moshe Rabbeinu had gone to look for Yosef at Tzadik, his body, within the Nile River. Moshe Rabbeinu had thrown in a piece of gold that said, Ale Shur. Ale Shur, rise up the ox, the ox of Kedusha, that Yosef was known as Ashur. A piece of gold, the Tas Shelzav, they say, that he threw inside the Nile River. Micha dove into the river to get that piece of gold. Micha dove into the river, got that piece of gold, and kept it on him at all times. Kept it on him at all times, kept it by him. Right at this point, when they had started throwing the gold in, and they just put it in that thing about the ego, all of a sudden, 
Micha came out on the other side and threw in this little petak of gold that said Ale Shore, come up, O ox. But because Micha was doing it the Tuma, instead of bringing up a shore of Kedusha, like what happened with Yosef Atzadik, with Yosef Atzadik's coffin, instead what came out was a shore of Tuma. And what came out was a tremendously tame shore. A Tame shore. Now we're not going to talk about all the differences between the Tame, the shore of Kedusha versus the shore of Tuma, but that's basically what happened. So he threw that inside because he thought it was from the Tuma. We mentioned all that, I'm sorry. Yeah, we spoke about Midasadin as well. And that's that. The Ibn Ezra says that they did it under a certain mazel, but whatever, that's not for now, right? Anyway, it became a shore of Tuma. Now a shore of Tuma is not an ox. A shore of Tuma has the front half of a, cow, of a cow, of a regular cow, but the back half of a donkey. That's the shore of Tuma. The shore of Kedusha is something very, very Kaddush. But the shore of Tuma is something that's shore and Chamor. Because of the shame that was put inside the, the Yudke Vavke, that the Yonis and Yambrus had put inside there, it was swallowed up by this cow that had come out of the fire, and all of a sudden it started yelling out loud, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Lo Yelecha, Lo etc. And started saying over the Esther Sedibros. All the people went absolutely crazy. Went absolutely crazy. What in the world is going on here? So 600 people on the 1.6 million hour rod started saying, he's speaking. He's speaking out the Esther Sedibros. This is a brand new Moshe Rabbeinu. This is a brand new Moshe Rabbeinu. Look what he's doing right now. They were completely convinced that this was a brand new Moshe Rabbeinu, something that they'd be able to have. Yeah, then, yes. So obviously, this couldn't be a graven image. Because how in the world would it be able to say such a thing? It was because of that shame of a Baruch that they were convinced there's something going on here. Plus, they were convinced because of Hur, and they saw that Aaron had made it, and Aaron sitting there like, "What in the world just happened with me? How in the world did that just happen? It happened too quickly." He had no idea what to do at this point. No idea what to do at this point. It started to eat grass and walk around. It started to eat grass on the ground. So people from B'nai Yisrael said to him, people from B'nai Yisrael walked around and they said to him, Oh my gosh. They said, Oh my gosh. What are we supposed to do? They saw all the people walking around watching this golden calf that was eating grass off the ground. They didn't hear it say, Anokhi Hashem and they started to make fun of those people. They started to say, like, you stupid losers. You're worshipping a little cow that's made of gold that's eating grass off the ground. I mean, it's pretty cool. But come on, this is not a god. So they started making fun of them. And that's log. The word log that came from the same letters as Egil. Started to make fun of them. They started saying, there's nothing going on here. However, the other people decided that they wanted to do something with it. So Aaron made his Mizbech. And he said, Chag Lashem Lamacher. It's going to be a Chag for our Baruch Hu tomorrow, knowing that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to come down very, very soon. The next day, anybody, everybody woke up extremely early. All these Erev Rav and those 600 people woke up extremely early. They went around. Anybody who kissed it, their learns, lips turned golden. Anyone who bowed down to it and sacrificed to it immediately got saras, leprosy, that went all over their faces as well as they turned black. They turned black. They turned black blackened faces. Tanned extremely high from, I guess you could say, the fire of it. I'm sorry? Are their lips turned gold? Because they kissed the Eglazov. They kissed the Eglazov. Kissing the Eglazov? No. Getting golden, golden. No, meaning you could tell that these were the guys who had kissed the eagle. No, so later on, when the Kohanim wanted to kill them, when the Levim tried to kill them, they knew who it was. So way, that's what happened. When Moshe came down, we're not going to go through the whole conversation with Moshe and Yeshua, but that's also an unbelievable thing. They realized what their mistake was. They did shuva immediately and allowed the Levim to kill them. That's the midrashim of what happened over there. Now, obviously, the word Lashem Shemayim things that I didn't mention, but those are the basic ideas. Now, we're going to stop right with this right now. You know what? 
I'll tell you one more word because this happens to be one of the best words I thought I was going to have time for it but I might as well say it because like what you know one out fine this is Chassam Sofer Chassam Sofer says the following Gemara and Yavamis Tez Zayin Amad Aleph I remember seeing this Gemara and you don't know you don't have a clue what's going on Rebbe Akiva goes out to find Ben Herkinus they all hear this board from Ben Herkinus that matters Tzaros Ha'achen to marry the Tzaros I'm sorry Tzaros yeah Tzaros Ha'achen Tzaros Ervas to marry the brothers and whatever it's a whole big deal and he holds like Beis Shammai and he went to go ask Ben Herkinus why he holds like Beis Shammai so Rebbe Akiva was an extremely powerful guy you know a guy who could argue many different things but at the time he was very very young he was still very young he was just still a, he was still a Talmud of Rebbe Yoshua so he found Ben Herkinus and Rebdosa Ben Herkinus Ben Herkinus's brother told him don't go looking for him the guy knows 300 different shuvas as to why he holds this way you don't want to go find him Rebbe Akiva said I'm doing it anyway so he went out after Rebbe Akiva fought with him Ben Herkinus won Ben Herkinus won in the end Ben Herkinus told Rebbe Akiva you're Rebbe Akiva whose fame is known throughout the land you're not even a shepherd of cattle not even a shepherd of cattle so Rebbe Akiva answered back I'm not even a shepherd of sheep so the problem is is that shepherds of sheep are greater than shepherds of cattle there's a Gemara Sanhedrin that clearly refers to Roy Bucker shepherds of cattle as being Amiratim they went up to the Roy Bucker and they heard what they said and they're like oh let's see if we should believe them or not Roy Bucker are known as Amiratim but Roy Tzon David Amalek was a Roy Tzon he was a shepherd of sheep Moshe Rabbeinu the Avos there are lots of people who are Roy Tzon who are great people so if anything when Rabbi Kiva like went one up he's like well um just a little bit less than Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> like, that's not the line you want to say back. Like, he was calling him, you're worse than an Amaretz. And he's like, I'm just a little bit less than Moshe. I'm gr- much greater than you think. That's not the line you want to say back. So what in the world is going on here with that Gemara? I never understood that Gemara. And they say, like, different words. But what's the shot? Okay. We know that Moshe and Kedusha was equal to Bilam in, Kid- in Tuma. The problem is, if Moshe was equal to Bilam, and Kedusha is more powerful than Tuma, how come Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't able to be Mavato Bilam? Wasn't he, why wasn't he able to destroy Bilam? He able to destroy all Tuma from the world. Why couldn't he do that? Why? Because he was only, what was Moshe Rabbeinu represented as? A Roet Zon, a shepherd of sheep. He's only a man of sheep. But Bilam was known as a shore, an axe, a goring axe. That's why he keeps mentioning the Re'em in the Parsha where he mentions, he mentions animals. He mentions like large animals. He refers to a shore of Tuma. He's a shore, an axe, is greater than Zon. So Moshe Rabbeinu had a lot of power, but he didn't have the power of the shore. Esav also had that power of the shore. Esav, the Gamash of Ayin, Sin, Vav. You spell it Ayin Yud Nun, Sin Yud Nun, and then Vav, Vav, Aleph, Vav, and you think the three words and whatever, it equals up to 506, which is shore. It equals up to 506, which is shore. Esav stands for that shore. And thus, when we fight Esav, Esav is the shore of Tuma. So what do we need to combat that? We need a shore of Kedusha. Who's the shore of Kedusha? Who's that axe of Kedusha? Who is it? Yosef Atzadik, right? That's why Yoshua had to fight Amok. Because where did Yoshua come from? He's the son of Ephraim. Ephraim is from Yosef Atzadik. He's the shore of Kedusha. That shore of Kedusha can fight Amalek, the shore of Tuma. Only a shore can go up against the shore. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu stood back and said, I can't do it. I'm only a sheep. The shore can do it. The axe can do it. And thus he said, Yoshua, you go out there. But even Yoshua didn't have enough power yet. There was not enough schuyos for Yoshua to be able to do anything but bayachalosh, but weaken them. He was able to weaken them, but not totally destroy them. Shoal also, even though he's from Bnei Rachel, he wasn't from Yosef. He wasn't a full shore. Therefore, he wasn't able to fully destroy Amalek. Only in the end, who's going to destroy Amalek? Mashiach ben Yosef will have that power. Only Mashiach ben Yosef is going to be the person who's going to have that power, and only then will it end up happening. Rebbe Akiva was well known at the end of his life for starting a rebellion 
against the Romans. The Bar Kokhva rebellion. Bar Kokhva was supposed to be Mashiach ben David, and Akiva ben Yosef was supposed to be Mashiach ben Yosef. What Ben Hurkinus said is that people are claiming about you, Rebbe Akiva, that you're going to be the future shore of Kedusha. And then you're going to be Machu, you're going to be able to destroy the shore of Tuma. That's what they say. They say you are the shore of Kedusha, you're Mashiach ben Yosef, and you in the future will be able to destroy the shore of Tuma. Said Ben Hurkinus over to Rebbe Akiva, the power of the shore is to gore. The power of the shore is to be able to learn up a sugya klor and to be able to argue your way through anything. To be able to destroy anybody else who's out there in Pilpul and be able to learn up a sugya. But you, you just lost to me. You're no Roe Bucker. You're not somebody who's the koach of the shore of Kedusha. You're a nobody. There's no way you're going to be Mashiach Ben Yosef. There's no way you're going to have that power. So Rebbe Akiva said, 100% right, I'm not even a Roe Tzom. I'm not even a guy who's a Son of Kedusha. I'm much, much lower than that. I'm much, much lower than that. Out of anivus, out of humility, he said such a line. And what he's saying is, you're right, 100%, I'm not going to be able to do it. I know I'm not going to be able to do it. That was Ben Hurkinus's line. Now it makes a little bit of sense what he was telling him. You're not a Ben Yosef. You're not a. You're not the guy who's going to fight a Malik. And what Rabbi Kiva was saying is 100% right. Out of Anivas, he said 100% right. You're not. You're right. I'm not the person who Lamaisa, Akiva Ben Yosef became Rabbi Kiva, who was Mashiach Ben Yosef. He could have destroyed all of Amalek, but Bar Kokhva messed it up. Bar Kokhva was the person who was able to mess it up. That's not for now. That's another story for a little bit later. We will. Uh, we'll stop with that right now. And uh, all right.